Hey, Grace City Church, uh, welcome to Sunday morning or Sunday evening, depending on uh, when you're joining us. Maybe maybe you're even watching this uh, later. Um, really, I'm really excited about uh, what we're going to be looking at and kind of talking through today. And so, um, obviously, if, if you're alive, um, you've been seeing on news, TV, um, just kind of all over the place, uh, just a lot of the things that have been happening and kind of going on uh, culturally with where we are in terms of... Um, race relations and discrimination and, and kind of how, how all of this is, is playing itself out. And, and I would say there are not a lot of things that are as, as polarizing as t- talking about race. And so for, for me personally, um, I remember a couple of years ago, I sat down with a couple of different guys, friends of mine, um, just black guys. And I said, hey man, share with me your experience of what it's like to be a black guy in America. And, and I can remember sitting there talking with them and, and talking about um, being followed in stores, being stopped multiple times for no reason, um, just, just all, all kinds of general things. And I just remember trying to reconcile my Christian faith, both as a pastor and as a follower of Christ, um, with, that, with, that, with what I was hearing in that moment. And so as I was watching these past two weeks, I thought, you know, I could, I could, get, I could come up here and, and I could speak and, and we could talk about what the Bible has to say about the gospel and race and the church. Um, or uh, I could have someone who I trust, who uh, loves Christ, loves the Bible, um, who has lived experience in this world. And so I'm really excited to introduce my friend, Mike Mack. Mike is, man, Mike's in, uh, we were talking about what, what to, to how to introduce and say about he's kind of in lots of worlds. So you're a youth pastor. So you work with youth. You manage uh, various artists. Yeah. Um, you you manage uh, an, like an event planning concerts and things like that. You're kind of in, in different worlds. But then you're also a longtime Bostonian, yep. Right? Yep. right? So grew up here um, in Boston. And so I thought let's have let's let's bring. Um, Mike on, and I've also just... been black my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you've been black your entire life. And so I'm going to ask questions because, because listen, as a like as a white guy, uh, it's not my lived experience, yeah. and I, I can read a lot of stuff, I can have a lot of conversations, but I think the best person that we can hear from today is you. And so we've got some questions. We're just going to kind of talk through. Um, and, 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 and really process through these things. And so really the first question that I want to ask is some people would say, hey, this is not an issue for the, the church to talk about. This isn't a gospel issue, right? Why are, we, why are we doing, like, why would we spend time to talk about this and do this? Aren't there other things that we should be talking about? So why, obviously I don't agree with that. Mm-hmm. Why is this an issue that the church should be talking about? Well, I want to frame it, first of all, by going to a scripture that, it's really stood out to me actually before all this really started happening has a scripture that jumped out to me um, is Philippians chapter two uh, verses three. And you can read all the way up through eight or you can kind of read the whole chapter um, beginning at that part. But it says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourself. Right. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being in human likeness, and being found in the appearance of a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Right? So this is literally like the, the creator of the universe, the son of God, who has all power in his hands, made himself lowly, humbled himself to the, to the, to the lowest degree possible, 
so that he could uh, come here and relate and love and, and show us affection and, and sacrifice his very being just for our sake, right? So if the God of the universe would be willing to kill himself just to save us, how very much more should we as human beings be willing to do and sacrifice in a menial way for each other? So if I come to you and I say, Ryan, every day um, I feel like I'm being persecuted. You know, look around and like, my life is really hard. I feel like it's really challenging for me as a black person. And your response to me is, no, it's not. Then we have a problem, right? There's, in some degree, in some instance, we have a problem. I've never had anyone, and this is why I, how I can't relate. You know, we talk about how you got how how white America would not be able to relate to young Black America or yeah. African Americans. The way that I can't relate back is I've never had anyone come up to me. If you came up to me and you were like, "Man, living living in Tennessee is the pits, bro. I really wish people would someone would come revitalize Tennessee and save us all." Yeah. I'd be like, "Wow, what can I do to help? Like, that's crazy. It must be terrible down there." I'd believe you quickly, not because Tennessee's a bad place, yeah. but because I'd be like, "Wow, this is what my brother is saying, and he has angst here. How can I help?" I would never just be like, "That can't be true." This is the United States of America. Yeah. Tennessee must be amazing. Yeah. And that's the response that we get a lot of times is, is African-Americans, people respond immediately as if what we're saying is just so preposterous and they can be so offended by even this, the idea of bringing up inequality. And that's the part where it's crazy, and especially us as Christians where we're called to be so empathetic to other people and to care so much about others that, we, that even Jesus was willing to give up all power in a sense, right, and come down and be a human. And we, we tell our brothers and sisters in the church, like, man, I really feel like you know, we're being heard across the country, like, look at the numbers, look at the statistics, like, what's going on? And the church is just like, no, there's no way that's happening. Yeah. It's like, how do you even get off in that position? Like, how does the church become so empathetic and so uncaring? And then we find, you know, historically, they've been intertwined with racism and with yeah. slavery, and, you know, that's a whole different story. Yeah, yeah, but you're right. It's, it's woven into, not just in, the, not just in the system of the states in America, right? I mean, because it's woven from the very beginning in it, but also in... The Christian Church yeah. um, is deeply rooted, and it's interesting because when when people say to me, "This isn't a gospel issue," like this isn't an issue that they want to talk about, um, that's fascinating because there's lots of other issues that people love to talk about, yeah. right? Yeah. We we love to to protest uh, abortion, and we should. Yeah. It's wrong. It's it's murder. It goes against what it means to be made in the image of God. Right? That child has value. Well, we we organize around that, right? We organize around, you know, human trafficking. Uh, we wouldn't say that's not an issue that we don't talk about in the church. But there seems to be, with this particular issue, um, and I think it strikes at the heart of, of the problem. Yeah, it's it, a pain point. It's yeah. a pain point for a reason. Right, yes. The, it, it seems to be the one thing that's like, well, no, we shouldn't be talking about this. And it's like, well, hold on, that doesn't, yeah. doesn't make sense. Okay, so, so one of the, okay, so... So we, we can fully see, man, God, we, we talk about these things because God cares about these things. God, I mean, from, you, you mentioned a verse. I, I've been in Isaiah 117. This verse has been um, a kind of a rooting verse for me. And this is what Isaiah says. He says, learn to do what is good. Pursue justice. Correct the oppressor. Defend the rights of the fatherless. And plead the widow's cause. This, this idea of learn to do what is good and pursue justice. Um, th that is the, the core of who God's people should be, is those people who should be pursuing justice. And I can't, th I can't think of a, of a better area where we need to be engaging in these conversations. Okay, so for me, I, I, I opened um, talking about this, but hearing kind of just personal 
experiences. I, I don't know if you, because we're in Boston. Yeah. Right? right. So, Special place. So I don't, I don't know if you, <laughs> you know, um, uh, the Boston Globe a couple of years ago put out a, a spotlight. Um, that's their, you know, their investigative team. They just, did you see that on racism? Which one? Yeah, they put out a multi-part, right? Okay, okay. They put yeah, out a multi-part, yeah, a, yeah. a whole series on, on racism in Boston. Yeah, it's crazy. Right, and you, you hear about Boston being a racist place on SNL, yeah. right? It, it feels like every time my Twitter feed is, yeah. you know, there's always a shot at Boston, right? Um, and, and so, man, can you just, in your kind of own personal, like, experience with being a believer, being a black man um, in Boston, in the city, what is that? How what does that look like for you? For me, it looks lonely. It looks like it looks like um, every job I've ever had being the black guy. It looks like every time uh, just just most areas. If I'm in a, if I'm in a nice area, you know, being the only black guy, being the only black guy at events, going to Copley Mall. I actually grew up in the South End <clears throat> in a really weird mixed environment. So I, I grew up in a project in the South End. Right, so there's a project building. Which, so Boston everywhere has like a mix of low-income housing yeah. in almost every building. Yeah. Like if there's a building, you have to make sure that there's some low-income housing. So I lived in a really, really high-end affluent area right next to the Copley Mall. Yeah. There's this big building, uh-huh. right, and there's a project. So 20, 20 to 30 percent of the people who live in there are broke, uh, living assistance, WIC, yeah. or whatever. So me and my family, we grew up in there, and so surrounded by just wealth and opulence, right? Everywhere around me, but broke as heck, like and having nothing. And so everybody knew that we were in there. So when we go to the mall, forget about it. Like we weren't allowed to go in stores because there's nothing in that mall, but like the Gucci store, the Louis store, all that sort of stuff. So I grew up living in that mall and looking at the window shopping every day. We would window shop every day. I couldn't go in any stores. I couldn't buy anything even if I wanted to. I'd have to save my allowance the whole year before I could even go to GameStop. (laughs) You know what I mean? And so we would walk around that mall and just the looks we would get, and you just grow up getting, just used to getting those looks. So like everywhere I would go, and even to this day, like I tell my wife all the time, my biggest pain point in my life is the fact that like I'm a very interactive person like I love people yeah. but being being a tall you know big black man people don't love me back that way yeah. so when I'm walking in my office in my office area throughout my building people will always avert their eyes people will always look uncomfortable if I say hi shock and jump yeah. if I hold the door open they'll look and be and just be confused yeah. or people clutch their purse or 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 little ladies you know feel like they got to move or cross the street you know what I mean? And, and to me, that's one of the most devastating parts. It's just like, I really just want to love people. I really want to talk to people. Like, I like to talk to everybody, yeah. but people don't want to talk to me. You know, people are scared to talk to me. So it's funny, when I, it's really a, that's a really an up north issue that you face a lot more because when you go down south or even if you go to like the west coast, yeah. like Caucasian Americans seem to be a little bit more lenient when it comes to like conversation. Yeah. So like when I'm somewhere else and I, and I see a, a Caucasian person and I smile at them, they smile back, I'm like, I'm like, whoa, yeah. he smiled back like, they can't be from up north. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. I can tell, I can tell, a, I can tell an up north Caucasian person from a down south or like a west coast yeah. Caucasian person anytime, yeah. just by the way they look at you. Yeah. So in Boston, there's just this contempt. Yeah. You know, it's just like this natural inbred just, uh, that you, that I feel and that I engage in all the time. And that's bigger than just the regular like, stop by the police type stuff. Like, yeah, I've been stopped by the police probably 10 times in my life. Yeah. I've only been stopped by one officer one time. Yeah. There's only been one time. Even for a, for a speeding violation, I got stopped by an officer one time. And that guy happened to be a Christian. Yeah. 
because he tried to tried to preach to me on the spot, which is yeah. which is pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> so he tried to preach to me. But every other time, I've been stopped by four, five. And when, one time in Miami, me and my friend were driving down the street, and we bust a U-turn because we were going the wrong way. And I realized that there was a cop coming up the street. I was like, oh, he's going to pull us over. Yeah. I was like, there's no way he's not going to pull us yeah. over. So he tells us when he gets close enough, he pulls us over for sure. And I swear, bro, 10 police cars come and surround us, sirens flashing everywhere. They get up to the car. They, you know, Everybody's like at attention. They're like, where are you guys doing? Where are you going? Yeah. We're like, oh, it's just going fishing. Yeah. And they're like, well, we stopped you because we heard there's a bank robbery in, in Fort Lauderdale. Yeah. And we're in Miami. So yeah. that's Fort Lauderdale is like 45 minutes, yeah. 30 minutes away. And we're like, you stopped us and pulled all these guys out because there was a bank robbery in Fort Lauderdale? Yeah, yeah. And they're like, yeah, you fit the description. I'm like, what's the description? Oh, yeah, a tall, black, light-skinned guy. First of all, yeah, yeah. there's no way you can tell that I'm six foot three yeah, yeah. by me being inside this Jeep Cherokee, right? Yeah, yeah. But I mean, that's, and that's just the day. Like, we're so far past expecting that to be the outcome that I don't think you really even hear black people complain about that stuff anymore. Yeah. Like, it takes a black guy to get murdered in the middle of the street in broad daylight and for someone to sit on his neck for eight minutes, and for six of those minutes, him to pass out, and then for two more minutes, him to just sit there. It takes that now for us to protest. Yeah. It, takes, it takes the young woman, Brianna, to get shot while she's sleeping in bed yeah. by police officers who just bust into her crib and just killed her, and then they arrest her boyfriend when he calls the police. It takes that, and that almost didn't even strike protest. Yeah. Those officers, I don't think, are even arrested yet. Yeah. So it takes that for black America to be like, Oh, enough is enough. Like the the getting followed around the store, getting accused for stuff for no reason, getting just arrested, getting going to jail for ten years because you had an ounce of marijuana, yeah. and drug wars and stuff like that. That stuff almost doesn't even stimulate us anymore because that's so regular yeah. stuff. That if it would happen to a lot of Caucasian Americans, that they would flip out and they'd be like, "I know my rights." Yeah. Well, we don't even know our rights. Black people are so far beyond knowing their rights because of the way we've been treated. It's almost like this is just must be how it is. So if we were to see, I mean, I. It's interesting, they say like it would take a white person, and this is one of the good things that came from Lou Giglio's talk. I know we only heard a couple parts, yeah. only a couple sound bites. But one of the good things that he said was um, it would take a white American living in a black American shoes for a couple weeks before they would even realize what racism is yeah. or what systematic oppression is before they even understand. And it would take, I think, even just as a black guy, I'd be shocked what it would be like to live as a white dude. Yeah. Like for me to see what it's not like to get followed around or for people to actually smile at me yeah. for, for to, to not get pulled over everywhere and, and feel like I have rights. I don't feel like I have rights. Yeah. And I don't know what it feels like to feel like I have rights. Yeah. I'm so, um, now obviously this, is, this is, has changed within the last few years, but I'm so oblivious to the fact that I'm white. Yeah. Like I don't even think about yeah. now I, I am now because I'm, I'm trying to do the work of understanding that I have a skin tone that defines how I'm treated. Right. But I, that's just not been growing up. Not something that I ever really thought about because everything around me was white. Yeah. I mean, you only, why would you? Yeah. You, you would, there's, there's no, no reason, reason to, for you to be shocked out of your understanding of, of yourself and your environment without something like, again, without someone coming up to you and saying, help. And then you should, you should address or try to understand the situation before you decide like, okay, that can't be true, which is what happens most of the time. But if you see that community and you're like, wow, these guys seem to be oppressed. And wow. So you, you mean to tell me that 10% uh, of black Americans are using drugs and nine and a half percent of white Americans are using drugs, but 80% of the people arrested for doing drugs are black and only 20% are white. How'd that happen? 
either black people are really bad at doing drugs <laughs> or they're being targeted. Like there's only, you know what I mean? There's something going on. So like you look at all the statistics, you have to, there's only two conclusions. And I feel like this is one of our questions later, but like there's only two responses to, to the epidemic or the way that African-Americans are treated and the way that the rate at which they're jailed, the rate at which they don't get mortgages, the rate at which they don't get good jobs, the rate at which they're, they're in jail for, for doing drugs, the rate at which we populate the prison system. There's only two options. Either there's systematic racism and, and there's power set up to, to make sure these guys fail or to take advantage of them when they fail or the entire black race are morons. Yeah. Like we either, we have to all be savage morons for us to be in jail and be, for this stuff to happen at the rate at which it happens. There's no, there can't be in between, it can't just be a coincidence. Okay, let's talk terms though. So when you say systematic racism, because we, we obviously this is, people are talking about this um, in, in the culture, right? Some people hear that, right? And they think there's an, I was talking to a friend this past week, um, and uh, he basically said, you know, when I used to hear systematic racism, I didn't, I didn't believe that it was true because I thought people were saying there were these undercover meetings of all the heads of organizations, right, that have now coordinated. And you know what I mean? He, for him, it's like it just sounded like, wow, are they coordinating that much, yeah. right? And, and so for him, he was like, I don't know necessarily that that happens. Now, he believes systematic racism. So how would you define, when we say systematic racism, yeah. define that for people so they can have a grasp on, yeah. on what exactly that means? And then what would you say to someone that says, I don't think it? So systematic racism would be an establishment of, of underlying rules and cultures that, that work together to convey and perpetuate racism or to restrict African-Americans or any specific group of people um, at like, a, at like a, a micro, macro level, right? So something that you can't see, but it's set up system-wide in order to, to cause, and what has been historically for African-Americans, to make sure that they never actually count, caught up to their white counterparts, right? So when we talk about uh, uh, a thing like redlining, which, is, which has been historically proven that, that banks and mortgage lenders and, and economies would set up in ways that we'd make sure that black communities would, would stay in a certain area in that they wouldn't be able to buy homes in other areas in order to control and manipulate wealth disparity. Because we know that the, the fastest way to gain wealth in America is from real estate, right? From property, from ownership, and, and from, from being able to get loans and establishing good credit. All those things all kind of work together. So there's been many studies that are proven even after the, the acts that were passed in, in, in uh, was like 64 or 84, one of them fours, but that, would, that was supposed to eliminate um, redlining we saw that even up until the past 10 years, the past five years, redlining has still been proven in banking because there's still a disproportionate rate of minorities who can't get loans in these other areas or who can't get loans in general who are disproven, uh, who don't get approved for their loans. And so they look at median income level of any group of people, such as, you know, like I said, white Americans, and they look at the median income level of black Americans who apply for the same loans in the rate at which the black Americans would not get approved is dramatically higher. Yeah. And so it's like, how does that happen? Well, it's, it's a controlled process of, of that. And um, I mean, it's just a lot of different ways that it manifests itself, um, but redlining being one of the big ways that they control wealth and wealth disparity. But then if you don't believe in systematic racism, you can almost just look at, um, I would say even like, like President Nixon in, in, in the way that he mobilized and utilized the CIA to, to wage a war on drugs on against African-Americans. Yeah, yeah. And one of his chief advisors comes out 
um, in 94, I think it was 94 in an interview and says, yeah, it's true. Like Nixon was, that, that whole war on drugs was just an opportunity to oppress African-Americans, yeah. right? So we use those opportunities and, and drug, drug uh, misdemeanors and charges up until very recently, there's a lot of African-Americans in jail for substantial amounts of time for marijuana. And I'm not going to get into the to the to the marijuana discussion because this is this I don't want to be that liberal, but yeah, yeah. but they shouldn't be serving 20 year sentences in jail. Well, you can for, buy it on um, when you when it's for sale now. The place is five minutes from my house, and it's popping. Yeah, yeah. That place is doing, and you know what? It's considered an essential service because it wasn't closed yeah. during COVID. It's been interesting to see the, and I think this speaks towards that because I walk by the the weed dispensary um, uh, almost every day. Yeah. Went well before COVID. And the people in line are of all different yeah. ethnicities, age stages. There's not, it's not like a bunch of black dudes out there. Yeah, right. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, you know, you see what I'm saying? It's, it's a bunch of, like, it's one of the things that it's like, well. And it's always been one of the things that across the country, marijuana has been utilized at a very heavy, and ext- you know, a very heavy rate, but it's always been undercover. And for some reason, again, um, African-Americans were the ones that ended up being persecuted for its usage in a way that's different from everyone else. Even when we look at heroin in the crack epidemic, um, those are all government-sanctioned issues and responses, like crack just destroying Harlem in, in black neighborhoods. And there's even, there's even you know, documentaries about how the crack epidemic um, went down what is one of the largest streets in Boston, which is Blue Hill Ave, yeah. and why it's still one of the worst streets and cities in the country and why it is um, in Boston, by far, it's one of, the, one of the worst degraded areas because that's one of the areas that was flooded with crack cocaine. Yeah. And so that, again, every attempt at African-Americans as a group, as a whole, to attempt to circumvent their situation has been met with resistance, not only resistance from just the average person, but government. Yeah. When, when the government decides that they want to intervene in and make sure that you don't succeed. How are you supposed to succeed? Um, so I'm reading Black in America. I don't know if you've read this book, but he, he basically talks about there's a value gap between white people being valued more than black people. Yeah. That's just what we see. And that we have a tendency, what he said that's been so interesting is he, you know, he says we have a, um, we have a tendency to disremember, right? So we, we, we look at July 4th. Yeah. We look at some of these days that, Columbus Day. that, yeah, that we celebrate. And it's like, well, I was free. Yeah. You weren't free. And that, you know what I mean? And, but we have a tendency to make America into something that it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so at a very deep level, it, it's, it's, it's there. Okay, so let's talk about, so there's some, there's some this Black Lives Matter movement, right? Yeah. Some, some people would say, why do you think, because I have conversations with people, that that statement alone bothers people, right? Or a, a statement like white privilege, right? There's, there, people have a problem with these statements of white privilege, right? So white privilege is this idea that my skin tone allows me opportunities, allows me a lifestyle, allows me things that Otherwise, that, that you don't, that you don't primarily have access to. Yeah. That I'm, I'm essentially, we're not, we don't start the same starting point, essentially, because of our skin. So that's white privilege, right? That, and it's more complex than that. Um, and then Black Lives Matter. That tends to bother people. Yeah. Why are those okay things to say? Why do you think that bothers people? Why, why are these statements? So especially Christians, right? So we're thinking through the lens of yeah. being 
Christ followers, because we can't deal with all of culture. We can't deal with all of how culture is responding to things, but we can deal with inside of the church. Why are these things that should be okay for us to embrace? Yeah. Uh, I think it's always interesting that white privilege uh, stimulates white Americans the way that it does. And, and there's, there's a guilt factor. There's an upfront factor like, ah, I'm not, pro- like, I haven't done anything. I'm not privileged. I'm not racist. So I can't, I don't want to even engage in the idea of white privilege. And that's what goes down to one of the resources, which we'll share later, is, is a book called White Fragility, yeah. which is an amazing book that even, that tackles really that subject matter. Like, why is it so hard for us to understand our wrongs or, or that we might benefit from some other wrong that I had nothing to do with, right? And so just the idea of people having privilege or people being associated with racism causes them to instantly just get worked up. They get so worked up. And then the idea of Black Lives Matter, it just kind of ties in. It's just like, why does it have to be black lives? Why do people feel like, why does it have to be a focus on you guys and, and what you guys are going through? Because um, I'm going through something too. Right, I, I have my own struggle, I have my own issue that I'm going through as well. And I think it's, again, it's the idea that, like I said, if, 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 if you, you were to come up to me and say all Chattanoogans matter before, the, before anything happened, like before Black Lives Matter was cool, before that thing became a slogan, if you were like, all Chattanoogans matter, I'd be like, what does that mean? You'd be like, haven't you heard? Chattanoogans have the, you know, there's a, there's a crazy wealth disparity as opposed to, the, to Nashville, and we're abused by Nashville all the time. I'd be like, wow, all Chattanoogans matter? But the only way that I would get offended is if I had, for some reason, maybe if I was from Nashville. Yeah. And I'd be like, well, Chattanoogans aren't better than Nashvilleans, yeah. right? And you'd be upset. So, so that really boils down to that point. It's really just that there's a pain point that has never been addressed in our country that, that, that shows you know, why every, every other uh, minority group that, that America has persecuted has received reparations and African-Americans haven't received reparations. Like the Jews, the Chinese, like everybody has gotten reparations. America's come back and said to everyone, man, we've done you guys wrong as a people. You know, Native Americans, we've done you wrong as a people. We're gonna make sure you get these casinos or something like that. Like reparations wouldn't do anything for us as a people, I don't believe. I don't think it would really benefit us um, in any real way. Maybe. In a lot of sense, we're getting wick at a reparations level. Like, that doesn't do anything for us to be stuck on the system. But the, it's just the idea that America as a whole has never just admitted and just sat there and said, we have done black America really wrong. And we utilized them and we used them for 350 some odd years. And, and then we gave them 20, 30 more years of Jim Crow. We specialized laws to make sure that they couldn't succeed. And then once Jim Crow was over, then we flooded them with crack and drugs and we made sure that they got sick and they died. And then as soon as that was over, we told them that they couldn't get mortgages so they couldn't create wealth. And, and then, then we took the factories and moved them out of close proximity to the black neighborhoods yeah. without cars. Nothing. And they yeah. say, now, now figure it out. Yeah, yeah. And so Told because, them they couldn't live in white neighborhoods. Yeah, we right? can't, so can't. You can't live in the white neighborhood that's close now to the factories because yep. you're not white. And still in Boston, there's still areas in Boston, if you're that guy, you live in those areas, your life is going to be miserable. Yeah. It's going to be very uncomfortable to live there. Yeah. And because America has never really addressed that, there's always this feeling of like, there's a feeling of guilt because they've never admitted what they've done wrong. And so that will always be a pain point. Yeah. Right, there's stuff that me and my wife have argued about that we've talked about during COVID. Stuff that we've argued about that's been pain points, and it's been pain points because of sin, and it's been unaddressed sin. Yeah. Right, and so the church is very compliant in the unaddressed sin aspect of racism because the church used the Bible in order to 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 teach slaves that they were supposed to be okay with being slaves. Yeah. Right, and so they used that and manipulated it in that sense. 
and didn't let blacks read certain parts of the Bible and then didn't teach them to read so that they couldn't read certain parts of the Bible and then made sure that they couldn't vote because they didn't teach them to read and so they could never they could never vote because you had to learn how to vote if you wanted to be able to I mean you had to learn how to read if you wanted to be able to vote yeah. but then, that's you had to have land, then you had to have land in order to vote but then you black people didn't have land. that's systematic racism again that's systematic oppression we're going to put this law we're not going to say this is a law to get rid of black people sure. but we're going to put this law in place so that it's going to eliminate 99% of black people well we don't we don't have a you know, people don't have a problem with the statement, unborn lives matter. Yeah. Anything right? else. Pray for London, pray have, for anybody. You know, women, women matter. Um, human trafficking victims matter. You could start all of those. Yeah. And nobody is going to argue. Because you know, of sin. Because nobody's of the gonna argue. Yeah, nobody's going to argue with that. And so it's a, yeah, it's, it's just been a, it just touches something um, in people. And, and I'm, I'm, you know, uh, I think I think you begin to see um, you begin to see all of this play out, and and a, a lack of for for white people, um, just a lack of of saying, like, have I ever owned slaves? Yeah. No, yeah. Um, I haven't. Did I benefit from generational wealth that most Black Americans didn't? One hundred percent. One hundred percent. And, and it's not a pol- I think that's the thing. It's not a po- I'm not I'm not apologizing for being white. I can't do that. But I'm recognizing and apologizing for the fact that I haven't yeah. recognized or stepped into conversations that have said, "Hey, my black brothers and sisters are experiencing a type of oppression that is directly against what it means to be made in the image of God." Um, and and the, the just this idea of the Imago Day and and so okay, good. All right, so a few, a few things here. Um, how, so how do you feel like the church, how's the church supposed to engage in healthy ways to bring about racial justice and equality? I, obviously, you can't, we can't, we don't have all the answers, right? I mean, yeah. maybe you do, and I can't wait to hear it, but um, how, how do we as a church, like, you know what I mean? Like, how do we engage in healthy ways to do that? I mean, again, the, the first, first off, the church has to be willing to accept the ideas of, you know, that Black Lives Matter or that, uh, again, that there's been an element of white privilege, yeah. right? We, they're they're going to have to be at the forefront of saying, like, this has happened, and now we need to do everything we can to to help try to balance out the system, right? And and so even for churches, I would say we'll start off with churches that don't have any idea what to do. Um, get involved and engaged in those communities where, you know, people are being oppressed or that people are struggling, and do what you can to assist especially the organizations in those areas that are working to help them. I think that a lot of times we find people who want to just, they get super excited and gung-ho and they're like, we're going to fix racism. So we're going to go and adopt some Negro boys or, some, or go to like a random community and, and we're going to set up, set up there and we're going to start giving out food and all this stuff. And that's stuff that doesn't really long-term benefit um, that community. But there's communities who have structured themselves and, and worked for years towards learning how to best serve those communities. So get behind those organizations and try to figure out how you can help them help those people. Help the specialists, allow them to do what it is that they do. Allow them to be specialists. Don't try to become a, you know, if you could become a specialist, maybe potentially you could, but it would take a very long time for you to learn and understand just the multi-leveled, multifaceted system of oppression, right? And how you can do long-term good. So I would say get in line with those organizations that are doing good and try to help them donate towards, you know, 
um, corporations and, and funds across America that are doing that good work. You know, get involved with, with those groups. And then in your church, make sure that you're teaching and eradicating racism at a very baseline level with everyone it is that you work with. I mean, we all know that up until this point, I'm positive that everyone you know, has had experiences where they've seen racism or been a part of, of oppression or been in a boardroom conversation where something's gone on and they just, you know, they were like, ooh, that doesn't seem right, but didn't say anything or didn't do anything or didn't stand up or make sure or fight for someone to get equality or fight for someone to get a job that they should have gotten. Right, and so again, that's what your scripture that you read about from is Isaiah. You should be fighting for justice. You should be fighting to make sure that that people are being treated like they are children of God. And so, when you're in those instances in those rooms where it's not happening, you have to start lifting your voice. Now, we got to start pointing stuff out. We got to start calling out these guys because your voice has way more power than our voices do. Yeah. It's it's easy for us to say, man, you know, Dave's racist, yeah. and you and Dave's like, no, I'm not. Because Dave's going to act a certain way around those people. But when he's in a room alone with you yeah. and you're seeing how Dave's acting, you're like, hey, I either got to try to talk to Dave or I got to do what I can to make sure that Dave, even Dave's impact is not as powerful as it could be. Like I have to sit in the room across from Dave and make sure like Dave's not getting away with this stuff. Yeah. You know what I mean? That stuff has to be pointed out, has to be addressed. But you guys are in rooms that we can't be in to do that stuff. But the church in general has to begin to fight and stand beside that. And, it, and the churches do the same thing. The church has to diversify its pulpits. Church has to divert. Every the only black person in your church shouldn't be the choir director, yeah. you know, which is what it typically typically ends up being the, the best person who could sing, you know what I mean? So it shouldn't just be that. It should be diversity. I always oh, I go to a I go to a it's at this point a hundred percent black church, yeah. and that makes me sad. Yeah. I'm saddened by the fact, but my church is in the hood. My church is very deep in the hood, and it's been there been there forever. Yeah. I grew up fighting kids outside of my church. I grew up playing football and, and basketball with the neighborhood dudes and having to prove myself and getting knives pulled out on us and then running into the church and stealing stuff or calling us church boy and like wanting to fight us because even though we grew up in the same neighborhood, I went to church and I was thus automatically soft, right? And so all those associations come in. So my church is in that area. So my church ends up being predominantly black, but the vision for the church should be really diverse, really multicultural. And I think I think at some points you just should look around. I mean, if your church is in Iowa, right? And, and <laughs> there's only two black guys in town, yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. Hopefully, Hopefully get, you get one them. of them. Yeah, Maybe yeah. You get one of them. Then you're diverse. You're but diverse if you're in an area, but if you're in Boston and this is a super diverse city, and I mean you're in an area like this where there's cultures all around the place, your your church should reflect that. If your church is in the midst of that area, a multicultural area, and you're only dragging in one type of person, then yeah, you got to assess like what are we doing? What are we doing? What do we need to do different? Why do people? Why do those people not feel comfortable coming here? A church should be as diverse as possible because heaven's going to be diverse. Yeah. It's going to be full of different colors. It's going to be full of different types of sinners yeah. who are forgiven and for stuff that we don't understand they were forgiven for. It's fascinating. You know, um, Martin Luther King said Sundays are the most segregated hour, right, in the U.S. And it's like, we're still there. Yeah, we are. I mean, I, like I said, I've been going to that church my whole life. I didn't start. I, I've lived in Boston my whole life. Like I said, I, I saw the, the, the white Americans like around me in, in my early place of living. I went to an all-Chinese elementary school, yeah. the Josiah, Josiah Quincy School, because it was close to the South End, so I got to go there. Yeah. Um, and then I went to a project-riddled, terrible middle school yeah. where I unlearned things, yeah. right, and got set back because, again, it's in my community, so I have to go somewhere that's in my community. So I went to that terrible school. And then I went to one of the best schools in the, in the state, Latin Academy, yeah. and then that was like a, a diverse-ish school. Yeah. It's like probably 60% white, and then like, 10, 15 Asian, um, Latino, and then probably 10% black. And we had the largest graduating black class. It was like 20 of us. 
the largest black class that ever graduated from there. Yeah. And so I got to see all this diversity, you see all this stuff, but I didn't understand how it was. Like I didn't go to, I didn't go to uh, Faneuil Hall until I was like 25. Yeah. Like where people come to visit Boston, where they go to visit, I didn't go to those places until I was a grown man. And I was like, I didn't even know this was here. Yeah. And so that's how easily you can just get sucked into this segregation and separation. And it just translates right into the church. Like you just grow up around your people. Yeah. Like I almost can say that I, maybe I didn't really understand what racism was myself until I went to college and I was around other people and really started getting hit over the head because it's so like quietly kept here. We had a race ride at my high school, like the kids from Southie and Southie, you know, was still like one of the, one of the most Caucasian, you know, areas. And when we were growing up, we weren't allowed to go to Southie because it was so racist yeah. and we were in danger for our lives. Yeah. We knew. And so they came to our school with hockey sticks and tried to beat up our basketball team. Yeah. Just a hundred white kids got on a bus. I don't know how they chartered a bus, but they got a bus and they came to our school with hockey sticks ready to beat us all up. Okay, so um, so we've we talked a little bit about that in terms of church. What do you feel like, just as a person not of color, like what do we? How do we start addressing these things? Like how do how do I? What do I do without, you know, because there's a lot of fear and like virtue signaling, right? And just saying like, oh, I care about black people, you know, just to be in the, the flow of culture. But so w- what do we do? Because honestly, there can be a lot of like fear, shame, guilt for people that, that aren't black, you know? And, and so what, what do you suggest like we do to really get a kind of a feel of other than watching things like this and that kind of thing? Yeah, like I said, getting engaged. I think it's the same because we're Christians. We're going to look through the Christian lens, and so I can't say I can't give you advice on how to move without even saying it as a Christian. But like I said, those same ideas of of aligning with organizations that do it well and that support is very important. Diversifying your friend circle is very important. Having again, if you're if you live in America and you're you're not in, you're not in somewhere. I don't want to keep singling out Iowa. That's the most Caucasian place I can think of. But like, if you're living in an area that's 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 super Caucasian, like yeah, you don't have a choice. But if you're in an area like like Massachusetts and there's all these hundreds of different cultures and like different people around, you should have a diverse friend circle. And and without that, you won't really even begin to understand these other people's cultures. Or you won't even understand if you're a racist. You won't understand the implicit biases that you have if you're never spending time around different cultures. If you don't spend time around Asian Americans and get to see like, what do you think when you see them? Like, do you, do you immediately have these, have these thoughts? You're like, wow, I, I shouldn't have thought that. Or um, even playing at BU. So you go to Boston University where we play basketball. Yeah. When you go there, that's like 75% Asian yeah. on the basketball courts, like everywhere. And, and they play a different style. Yeah. Like in China, they told me in China, they only play half court, so they hate playing full court. Yeah, they, they will play 10 on 10 yeah. half court. Yeah. And you will be like, can we run full? They'll be like, no, we are good. Yeah right here, 10 on 10, and it makes no sense to us. Yeah. But again, it's just understanding their culture, and if, you're, if we're just being typical Americans, we're going there and say, oh, get out the way, that's not what we do here, yeah. you know? But because you have the opportunity to sit with them and learn, the only reason I know that is because I asked them one day, I was like, why do you guys play half court like this? Yeah. And they're like, oh, because in, half, well, in China, we don't have full courts. Yeah. We only have, so we, we learned how to play half court. We didn't even learn how to play full court, so that game is kind of weird to us. Yeah. So we're not that good that's at it. That's fascinating. It's fascinating, but that's what you have to do when you get out into the world and you see human beings, get to know somebody. Yeah. You know what I mean? Learn about them. Learn what it is that makes them tick, and then you can understand, like, what your biases are, and you don't, if you're not around them, you never get a chance, like you said. Yeah. You never would know that you're racist or that you're not racist until you get around black people and you're just like, oh, I don't like that. Yeah. And I don't want them to do that yeah. because it's not what I do. Yeah, I think my proximity to, because we tend to, vil- this is true of anything, but, but we villainize from afar. 
And so proximity to people has always been one of those things for me that's been a really helpful knocking down just really unhealthy thoughts or things I have about people. And so just I've tried to get around like other just really solid black dudes who who I know um, and kind of hear their experience and and in those types of things. Um, And And don't don't crowd them, too, because like. Yeah, like, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm doing the... Oh, yeah. Will you be my black friend? Right, exactly. Like, like this internal social experiment. Can we get an Instagram? But like, that's what's happening across... That's what's happening across the country. Are right you now. seeing a change? Okay, are you... Can you feel a change in the air? I mean, are more white people smiling at you? You know what I mean? Or, like, what... Like, is there any... Like, are you seeing any kind of, like, different response right now? I think... Up here, so again, it's always different ge- geographically. Yeah. But up here, what we're experiencing, I said with my wife, uh, again, two weeks ago, we were at uh, Quincy Beach. We're sitting in the car, and still, still the awkward, weird, or uncomfortable look yeah. from from white Americans, like Caucasians every, everywhere. Yeah. And so now it's like a, before where it was more of a disdain and just like dis- disinterest in saying hi or, or angst, now it's like, now they feel bad and they're still weird. Yeah. So now it's like, uh, yeah. like, that's what I get more now. Yeah. So I don't know if that's progress or not, but maybe, <laughs> maybe we'll, but what we are having is more dialogue. There's definitely more dialogue happening. I had a, had a good talk with uh, my coworkers on, on a Zoom meeting the other day yeah. where, you know, which is again, I'm the, the black guy in the room. And so I'm, we all across America, we all kind of feel like it's our responsibility because only so many of us are in corporate settings or made it out of, you know, you know, of our environments. And so we're in a meeting. So you feel that? You feel the weight. Yeah. We all feel the weight. And we have to have talks. So like, so like you texted me when, when, when stuff was going on. And you were like, hey, man, just checking on you. But like, to be that black guy in a lot of those settings, to get 50 messages and everybody's like, I love it that you're like, hey, I'm praying for you, bro. I hope everything is good. Like, let me know what I can do to help. Yeah. That's cool. But a lot of guys are getting, hey, man, am I racist? Or like, what have I been doing wrong all these years? Or like, could you start, could you just give me a quick essay and like synopsis on what systematic racism is and what Jim Crow has meant to you and like how we can reverse this yeah, anytime yeah. soon? And like, so we're having to have these that. talks. Yeah. Every, every, like most, we had a meeting, again, another one, we had a diversity and inclusion meeting in my office. Um, for, for BU in general, yeah. and everybody on there is a hundred, you know, affluent. I would say affluent African Americans, guys who've made it into to, to positions of, of authority or whatever, and they're all saying the same thing. Like everyone's asking me questions. They're all asking, like all these white people are asking me over and over, like, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And it's a lot of pressure to be that face, because not only do we have to be that for you guys. But at the same time, we're still in the midst of being oppressed. We're still in the midst of seeing protests and seeing more and more black people be killed by police on television and dealing with this. That's so that we have that shock going on while we're still trying to be the shoulder for this other group, a lot of which are feeling just like guilty. Yeah, they're shamey and they're guilty and they're like, what do we do? And we're like, I don't know. I'm busy crying over here in the corner trying to figure out what I'm going to, how I'm going to do. And then I have to go hop on a Zoom call with my boss and act like nothing's wrong later. Yeah, it's such a complex. And then I get on the call and and everybody's just living life and they're they're great. And then someone will randomly be like, hey, Mike, how you doing? And you'll be like, what kind of how you doing is that? Like I've had guys just ambiguously text me like, hey, bro, you good? Yeah. Like, am I good in what sense? Yeah. Or like, I had a call for a tour. Like, a guy on the tour calls me. He's like, "Hey, Mike, how you dealing with everything?" Yeah. And I'm like, "What is everything?" Because there's a lot going on right now. Yeah. And I'm like, "Is he talking about race?" Because I'm like, 
I don't really want to talk about it, but that's cool if he's, that's what he's checking on. And I'm like, everything, like, I mean, COVID, like, COVID's cool. He's like, yeah, COVID. Yeah. I was like, oh, he's not even, he's oblivious too. Like, he doesn't even, and he's from Tennessee. I'm like, he's oblivious too. He doesn't even know what's going on. And so we're dealing, we're juggling, bro. We're juggling so much stuff. Like, is there, do you, is it, is it, so like, from a person, and we'll get, we'll kind of land the plane here in a second, but like, is it, so for, for like, a white person to so say say somebody that's watching this right they they have a a, a black friend that um that they're close to or that they know like at a level i mean is it a good thing to say to them hey man can we grab coffee and lunch or is that just an exhausting thing as a black person where you're if just there's a like, hundred people who are trying to get coffee and lunch and what they want to talk about is this yeah. no human being has the emotional capacity to do yeah. it right and so hopefully again you've established good relationships yeah prior to this. And if you haven't established good relationships, it's time to start building on those, building on those relationships authentically. Because if you don't have the authentic relationship, and what, what happens is a lot of white Americans have the one black friend, but that one black friend happens to be the one black friend of a hundred different people. Yeah. And so he's gotta, he's gotta be that for everybody, yeah. right? He's gotta be this support system where at this point he or she needs so much support. Like my wife went to a, went to a, 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 a private school Right, and so she's in a class of 500 kids, mm-hmm. and five of them are five of them are black. Yeah. So there's 400 kids at that school who think that they you're the black kid yeah, that they know. Kid, yeah, so they're like, oh man, I gotta reach out to Jay and see how he's doing. Yeah. And you're getting all these messages, and a lot of them just aren't edifying. A lot of them aren't helpful. Sure. But some of them, some of them are helpful. But you text me, like I think it took me a couple of days to respond because yeah. I'm overwhelmed. Sure. And that's fine. But if you hit me back the next day, like, hey, bro, I said, are you good? Yeah, do you like, not care about my text? <laughs> I'm trying to, I'm do trying you to. care about my text, yeah. man? I'm trying bro. to reach you as a white man. This is why yeah. you're systematically oppressed. Yeah, but like, no, yeah. so this is, so you know what I mean? Yeah. Do what you can. Okay, okay. So, so suggestions, let's talk about, and I'd ask, um, I talked to you about this, but what are suggestions for, for people if they want to listen to something, read something, watch something? We'll put everything um, on our YouTube page. It'll be all underneath the, the page for this. But like, what are books? that You mentioned White Fragility, which is a great book. Yeah, White Fragility and, and then uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist, okay. which is Ibram. Um, and he's uh, actually starting a, a center at Boston University for oh, wow. study of, of racism. Okay. And so he's a leading like racism scholar across the country. The fact that there's a there's a leading racism scholar across the country. It yeah. should have been a red flag before yeah. any of this. Yeah. But uh, so he's doing a, he's gonna have a center at BU and they're gonna study and dissect racism and um, how, to, how to repair it and how America can move on. Yeah. So those are two like really good books that you can, that you can go on and, and listen to the scholars of both those books and listen to their interviews and, and, get, and get uncomfortable. Yeah. This is the point now where everybody's uncomfortable, America's uncomfortable and they're uncomfortable because again, it's been 400 years in the making. Yeah. Yeah. 400 years. And there's people who are just like, you should get over it. Like, you should be moving past this. Well, Jim Crow was, like, not that long. I mean, yeah. the 60s. I, Like you said, I'm 38. Yeah. So if I would have been born 20 years earlier, yeah. I wouldn't have been able you to vote. vote. If you're 57 now, you, what, you weren't born with an ability to vote. Yeah. That's crazy. Any, any, um, any black pastors that are just handling these things really well that people could listen to that, that you know of, that you want to suggest, or... You know what I'm saying? I know we got some books where they're like. Yeah, I mean, I I, I like like Tony Evans because Tony Evans has just lost his wife and he's going through like a really challenging moment and he dealt with it with such grace yeah. that it's like he's in Dallas. It's, yeah, that I've should been in his church. It's great. That should inspire the world the yeah. way that he dealt with his yeah. with losing his wife and um, any other guys, any like cultural guy, like just guys who man, eat, not, particular believers that you know are navigating this space. Nah, I'm not. You know, I have to be honest. Like, I'm not a big fan of listening 
to a lot of different voices, sure. um, especially when we're talking about racism and, and race culture and in black and white culture. Because again, because I'm living it so much, and this is again for you know this is a kind of a joke that goes around the black community. Um, this stuff is like it's, it's a horror film to us. Yeah. Watching some of those movies, like you know, Sixteen Years a Slave, like uh, was it Thirty Years? It Sixteen Years a Slave. Twelve years, twelve years a slave. See, I I watch that. I I don't want to watch it and cry. I don't want to see. I don't want to watch Rosewood. You know what I mean? And the the massacre of all those. See, I'm looking at statistics last night of just how many times um, in different cities across the country that white Americans just went through and killed as many black people as they could. Tulsa, Oklahoma City bombing, like that's one of like six or seven that are documented. Documented. In the, and those have all happened within the past hundred years where they've gone through. So for all the people who are just like, why don't black people just get it together? Well, you, you kill all of our leaders, alienate us when we try to nonviolently protest. When affluent cities and communities come together as a whole and start to build something, they're all bombed. Everyone in there gets killed and lynched and murdered. And so that's how we kind of got to this place. Where yeah, I mean, King, you know, King said riot is the language of the unheard, right? And so obviously... Um, I, I, you know, with all the stuff that's going on, you you seem to have peaceful protests and you have rioting. Obviously, the destroying and rioting is wrong. Yeah. But but Martin Luther King like recognizes it as the language of of the unheard. It's a natural. In, in any other scenario, if that was the outcome, we would be like, well, yeah. yeah. If you have a if you have if you're if you if you have a neighbor across the street and your neighbor lives there and he has a wife and he has six kids and you live on this side of the street and you got two sons and every day your sons go over there and beat up the neighbor's kids. They beat them up and they foul and they pee on their yard and they throw stuff at their house and they, they write N-word on it. And then you go over there and you beat up the, the father and then one day you kill one of the kids and then the kids say, I've had enough and they go over there and they burn your house down. You, your, your reaction is, I can't believe they reacted that way. I can't believe that that happened. Yeah. And all you want to focus on is the fact that they burn out, but you ignore the fact that for 50 years, you had been abusing that family. Yeah. All you can see is the fact that they, one day, they lost their minds. Yeah. After 400 years, yeah. finally, these people are losing their minds. And the looters are, for the most part, not even, obviously, not even uh, involved in the, no, the protest. No, no. They're different people taking advantage of the situation. And I've seen the looters, and they're not and they're just wh- black. Yeah, they're, they're white people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, white people. Everybody's mixed up. But if this is the reaction after 400 years, of enslaving a group of people, abusing them, taking everything they had, killing all their leaders, taking their followers, taking all their money, allowing them to do sport for you, only watching them on TV, not allowing them to be represented in any other way, in area in the world, and then one day they'd steal a TV and all you can see is the fact that the TV got stolen when the TV's insured, then you have a problem. Okay, so last question, um, and I actually I don't know that I gave you this one, but anything, anything that is just giving you hope right now. These talks, these conversations give us hope. Um, there's different groups of people who, who seem to be getting their eyes open. Like I've had one or two people who shocked me that reached out and said, hey, I'm sorry that, you, that this has been going on. I'm sorry that I haven't been an advocate earlier and I wanna do whatever I can to try to help out. That's good. I mean, the, police, the, the potential police perform bill that President Trump signed um, yesterday or, or two days ago um, gives us hope yeah. that you know the voices are, are kind of being heard. What that's what that's going to do for a trickle down effect, um, who knows? But hopefully it does. Um, they're not going to ban choking. It looks like um, that's unfortunate. But there are different things that are occurring throughout the country from a legislative standpoint yeah. that should long term um, help Black Americans and help eliminate 
um, some of the forms of systematic racism that exist. I, you know, I, ideally the church should lead out in front of these things. I mean, no, I mean, the gospel is the good news for all people everywhere at all times. Um, and, and so ultimately it has to move us to, to change and to seek to understand other people. I mean, this is, this is what Jesus did for us, right? He went, and I think that's the thing I want to say. It's like Jesus went after the one sheep, left the 99 because the one sheep was, was in a place of danger. And so we've got to, I think as believers, if we want to live the way of Jesus rightly, uh, we've got to be able to look at the, what, what is existing and what's in front of us. As hard and as much work as that is, um, and, and realize that as a reality, both as white Christians, black Christians, like um, uh, Asian, American, like all, all the way across the board um, as believers. And so I think the, the church, man, if the church doesn't take this as an opportunity to say like, hey, this has got to stop, um, I think we just miss it um, in that. Man, would you, would you pray for us? Anything else, dude? No, that's, thanks I'm, for I'm being hot, here, man. I'm yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm Dude, thanks for thanks for being here, man. Our church, uh, we'll, have, we'll have you in in person when we can, you know, see people physically again. But um, appreciate you being with us and kind of, uh, you know, uh, kind of allowing us to sit in and listen and talk. And we'll put we'll put resources and all those kind of things online. But why don't you pray for us, and then uh, and then we'll be done. All right, cool. Lord, we just thank you. We thank you for this time, Lord God. We thank you for this uh, hopefully a great awakening across the Americas and across the world, Lord God. I just wanna thank you for all the advocates, all the people who have felt the tug at their heart, Lord God, who have felt moved um, with compassion, with love towards another, Lord God, one that doesn't look like them, Lord God, but just a desire to help and, and to bring back hope, Lord God, and equality, Lord. We know that you you said that there is only, there is just you, just you know, no difference between Jew and Gentile and Greek, Lord God, but you wanna save us all, Lord God. You wanna redeem us all, Lord. But man has, has somehow put division between that, Lord God, and, and separated, Lord. We just pray for the time that you're bringing us back together, Lord God. We pray, Lord, even with excitement and enthusiasm for heaven, when, when we'll all be reunited, where there, won't, where there truly won't be any creeds, where there won't truly be any races, Lord God, any hierarchies, and we can all worship together at your feet, Lord God, and we will see brothers of different kinds, we'll see sisters of different colors, Lord God. We just cry out for you, Lord God. Black America, I think, is at a point now, Lord God, where they're just crying out, Maranatha, Lord, please come back, please save us, Lord God, because at this point, Lord, it, only seems, it seems like only you could do it, Lord. So we pray that the church takes its rightful position, Lord God, led by your spirit to do your good work in the world across the nation, Lord God. We pray, Lord God, that you would just come see about us, Lord God. We pray for everyone that hears, Lord God, everyone's heart would be open. Remove stony hearts, Lord God, and replace them with hearts of flesh. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.